when someone has gestational capacity, we can't always call life in, but we can stand at the gate and say, it's not time for you to enter. Uh, and that's, that's a powerful choice. And when there's so much stigma, people can just feel a sense of shame rather than um, the sense of power that they have to be able to make that, that kind of a choice for themselves and to know what's best for them in their own life. Uh, so being able to hold a presence for that uh, and let people feel whatever they're going to feel about what they're going through. So I think the full spectrum doula in the context of abortion is helping to mitigate all of these things that are practical and emotional, psychological, and in some cases, spiritual. Welcome to the Wash Your Mouth Out podcast, power, pleasure, and parenting. We are stigma-smashing feminist parents out. creating a new narrative. Put in your earbuds. This is for you only. This out. is the place to be entertained, empowered, inspired, and feel Wash seen while you're raising small humans. We are your hosts, Morea Malott and Madison Young. Morea is a writer, sleep educator and consultant, lactation counselor, and supports parents to become confident in gentle discipline and boundary setting from a feminist perspective. Madison is a published author, educator, and sex radical media maven, smashing sexual shame and bringing feminist narratives to the forefront through filmmaking, television, and theater. We're longtime friends, and we became parents right around the same time. This episode is brought to you by ToolshedToys.com. Maggie Mayhem is a former sex worker, current birth worker, and death worker in training from San Francisco, California. She has been involved in public health since 2003 and is an international advocate for sex worker rights and reproductive justice. As a full-spectrum doula, she believes in providing a supportive presence for people in the journey from womb to tomb and offers support for any possible outcome of fertility. She has served on the board of directors for the Sex Worker Outreach Project USA, founded the Health Hygiene and Harm Reduction Project, Harm Redux SF, and is part of the leadership and training team of the Bay Area Doula Project, which focuses on abortion support and access. She has spoken about sexual biometrics at South by Southwest, debated pornography at Yale with Gail Dines, is a feminist porn award recipient, and I have been collaborating with this powerhouse of an activist on sex positive projects for over a decade. Maggie's website is maggiemayhem.com. You can check her out there and you can follow her on Instagram as at Maggie Mayhem or on Twitter as at Ms. Maggie Mayhem. Welcome, Maggie. Maggie, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I'm always so inspired by all the incredible activism that you're doing in the world of sexuality and sexual health and social justice and over the last several years moving into birth work and reproductive rights and full spectrum doula training. So, um, and now you're deep in the throes of new parenthood, correct? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. Uh, and I might even be a, <laughs> a baby cry cameo sometime on this, uh, this uh, podcast if someone gets hungry, but I am I'm a new mom. Uh, my baby is just under four months old. Uh, I was born on April 1st. And so how, I know this is, this is the challenge for all of us. How are you finding the balance right now? Because I know the first year for me is, has, has been <laughs> with both of my kiddos, the, most challenging just in adjusting and finding balance and that transition into something new. Um, so how, how are you finding that balance right now with your birth work and activism and now bringing in parenting? You know, it is a work in progress, uh, but I think I've been helped out by the flexibility and people in my life. I, continue doing leadership work with the Bay Area Doula Project. I was leading a training when I was nine months pregnant and everyone there was really flexible to my needs during my pregnancy. And then now that I'm in the postpartum phase, people have been really 
accommodating and letting me do meetings remotely. So I do a lot of video work, um, which allows me uh, a lot more time. It takes so much effort to just get a baby into a car seat. Uh, you know, like the way that I used to be able to just leave the house, you know, throw on a pair of sneakers and go do what I need to do. That doesn't work anymore. It takes, it takes some work and hostage negotiation to get a baby into a car seat and go do a simple <laughs> errand. So learning that that just, you know, how much time you have to add on to leaving the house. Um, so anytime I can cut down on that and do something, um, you know, either by video or either by phone allows me to accomplish a lot more and anything I accomplish makes me feel better about what I'm doing and makes me feel better about my balance. As a birth, as a birth worker, do you feel like your experience in being present for so many other birthing individuals during their labors and birthing experiences, did that inform your own birthing experience? And um, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. All those experiences absolutely informed my own birth experience, even down to the way I decided I wasn't going to have a birth plan per se. I was just going to really bank on my knowledge of what I might face during labor and give myself the room to make choices as they came along. I did have a starting place at home, um, but I always wanted to have flexibility along the way. So I was pre-registered at a hospital as a backup. I still practice with my partner how to get to the hospital, um, but I knew if I if I started at a hospital, I wouldn't be able to necessarily transition back home as easily, but I could go from home to hospital. Uh, so I set myself up with, you know, things that I would like to see happen. I would have really loved to have had a home birth, so I started there, but I gave myself the room and flexibility to make different choices along the way and not be too attached to, um, I guess, any particular outcome or attached to a plan for an outcome. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the uh, greatest experiences of surrender um, that I've ever had. And I, I know I'm a bit of a control freak. So um, <laughs> I think the first time mm -hmm. around for me was very much uh, a lesson in relinquishing some of that control um and and really surrendering to the experience yeah well and, and it was it was really all the everyone who i've ever been with in their journey and for some of them it was pregnancy loss for other people it was ivf um i have supported someone who was a surrogate um there were all kinds of journeys and they were all really, really present in my mind and giving me comfort at different points because I experienced so many different kinds of labors. I labored for 33 hours at home with a sunny side up baby. Um, so having back labor um, and, you know, getting a cervical lift when the baby's head was, you know, kind of pinching my pelvis a little bit. I labored in the hospital for a while and then I ultimately had a C-section. And so I really feel like the constellation of experiences um, were there for me at every step along the way, and they gave me tremendous comfort. Um, I felt very good when I actually went into surgery. I, you know, I was really at peace with that being the right way for my baby to emerge. And we never had an emergency. We had an emergence, absolutely. Uh, but I was so grateful. I was so grateful to every person I have ever been with. And they all whispered something into my ear at different points in my labor. That's wonderful. And so what kind of birth team did you put together for that experience? I had the services of a home birth midwife. Um, I also did some work with uh, the, the local hospital. I had a photographer who was trained as a doula. So I had kind of a two-in-one wow. uh, deal with that. And so I got to have some really beautiful pictures of the experience. And my photographer was able to both be an observer and an artist, very much an artist, and be detached, but also to be that grounding presence and have their own familiarity with the birth process and knowing the right time and the right place uh, to help me out. Um, because, you know, it's... Uh, a photographer is great, but there's a lot of moments that are just kind of, you're hanging out 
you know, there's only so many pictures that I needed of me in the birth pool in my living room. You know, I was in that pool for like 10 hours. And after a while that, that gets a little redundant. So right. it's not like you're going to break the scene or break the moment <laughs> to have someone put a reassuring hand on your shoulder. You know, they're not really, <laughs> they're not interrupting the shot at that point. That's so wonderful that you were able to have that team. And I know you have done some incredible doula work and I think a doula is such a key doulas and midwives I mean experiencing having a doula and a midwife I feel like I always want a doula and midwife <laughs> for all of the yeah. transitions that I'm having um in different points of our lives and um and I think it's it's really incredible the work that you've done I know that you have been a doula for so many women that might not be able to afford a doula and who really need that support. Um, I mean, everyone I feel like who's birthing really needs space held and that emotional support. Can you tell me a little bit about this uh, a doula training for um, incarcer incarcerated uh, women? Absolutely. Yes. I um, got to work with the Minnesota Prison Doula Project. They are a very successful program that bring doulas behind bars um, and uh, to, to listen to them about how they establish their program. And uh, they were also doing that in collaboration with the Alabama uh, Prison Project and they're at Tetweiler. And Tutwiler is kind of known as being basically the worst women's prison in the United States. Uh, they, they had the worst conditions. They had outright dangerous conditions. They were actually on the verge of getting like shut down or federal oversight and doulas being, you know, very clever and ingenious people really got to see that opportunity of the prison needing to do something to shape up their act as an opportunity to get in there and do some really radical and important things. They have a lactation room for the, the women who are incarcerated because not only are they going to face a lot of negativity in their birth, which I can and will talk about, um, but they're also, you know, most incarcerated women are denied the opportunity to even pump their own breast milk and nourish their children, uh, which can be an important connection. And so the prison for the longest time, it said there's no way we can do a lactation room. Like what if those breast pump tubes are used as a weapon, even though there has never been one single incident in the history of American incarceration where a breast pump has been used as a weapon. So <laughs> this hasn't happened. Um, mm -hmm. And they got that lactation room and they got nutritious, like homemade food from the community into the prison, including more fruits and vegetables, which are necessary. Uh, and started asking a lot of important questions because we don't have very much research about how prison conditions are affecting pregnancy. Um, mm -hmm. We don't even know about how how prison nutrition is, is what that's doing to children. Um, so it was just, it was fantastic to meet all of these amazing people who are, you know, sticking their nose behind bars um, and making changes and uh, basically helping teach and train and support programs across the country uh, so that we can stop turning our back and stop using the excuse that, you know, if someone's in jail, they must be a bad person. Well, A, we know that our criminal justice system has so many issues that we can't make that assumption. Um, even if it were true, nobody is the sum of their like worst deed. Uh, and their children deserve support and babies deserve support. Uh, so there's just so much, so much power behind this work. Uh, and yeah, I've learned, I've learned so much, so much. And you, know, you consider that the women's prison population has increased by hundreds of percent over the past 30 years uh, and that it's women of reproductive age who are most likely to be incarcerated, we, we can't act like this isn't important to talk about and we can't forget about people. Um, these, are, these are our community members. Absolutely. So you, you were mentioning that there's a program that's, that's currently in place and where is, where is the program um, based out of? Alabama at Tutwiler uh, Prison. Right. Yeah. And then the Minnesota prisons have, um, have their own sets of programs. And it's been actually interesting to see 
um, where a doula program is more likely to be set up. Do you think that prison, which is would be a little bit harder because that's um, at a bigger level, but actually sometimes county jails have worse conditions for people and fewer resources. So over in the Bay Area where I live, um, we've definitely had a case where someone you know, was ignored when they were in solitary um, when they were pregnant and had to deliver by themselves. Uh, and that stories like that really hit me because I, you know, I had this position of privilege where when I was planning my pregnancy and thinking about things like birth plans, I'm worried about who I'm going to hire as a midwife and what my nursery is going to look like and what, you know, what kind of toys and material goods am I going to get for my baby? Uh, and meanwhile, there's someone who is behind bars who might not even be told, they might have a C-section scheduled and they will not be told the date. That is, wow. that information is withheld from them because there could be an escape. Um, when they go to the hospital, they are likely to be shackled. Uh, and even in places where we have anti-shackling legislation, there's no reporting requirement. Uh, and it's up to an officer's discretion. So we know that even in places where there are like prohibitions against shackling, that they're being violated. Um, even though there has never been a, in the history of American incarceration, there has never been somebody who was in labor who escaped, um, especially not with an epidural, which, you know, no one is walking when they've had an epidural. Um, and what that, you know, like the beauty, the beauty of my birth and starting at home versus someone who is going to get transferred in a van and they're going to be identified with their prison clothing. Um, they're going to be treated as an inmate and not a birthing person, not a mother. Um, they're not going to have a chosen companion. They're not going to have their partner or a parent with them um, because that, again, could be a security risk. Um, you know, it's security guards who are cutting the cord and holding the baby. Um, and then at the end of a birth, um, after they're staying in the hospital for that two or three days, they're going to be rebooked into the hospital the way anyone who is incarcerated is, and that includes um, the strip search and the requisite squat and cough. Um, and if you've ever been postpartum and you know what that 72 hours is after birth, to imagine having to go through oh a strip search like that and to have to stand in a room, you know, with those overhead fluorescent lights and the concrete floor and people stare at you and have to squat on the ground and cough. Uh, is a humiliating and unnecessary process. So all of those things, it's, you know, a doula can do so little, but you can be with somebody. You can be the person who's present for a birth, who's not a guard. Um, you can bring honor and you can bring dignity uh, back to someone who deserves it for a beautiful moment. Um, and also to provide support on what can be the horrifying moment of separation when the baby is taken away. And that's, that's the unfortunate conclusion of births is that someone will be separated from their baby. They only get those few days um, and then it might be years until they see their child again. <sighs> wow. That's so, <laughs> such, such important work, such important work and so horrifying that that, that even exists. Um, but so it is, and it, it, and it's important to have these resources and infiltrating into these systems while we dismantle them. Absolutely. Um, because I am, you know, I think that the goals of reducing the need to have prisons is at the forefront of my mind. Um, and there's someone who's going to be giving birth behind bars today and right. they deserve resources and dignity and support. Um, but it also shows, you know, the way that our prison system, it really wasn't designed with um, bodies that have gestational capacity in mind. They were very much designed to hold men. And now that we're um, with a drug war in our country um, and we're incarcerating more and more people who are not men, who are transgender women, who deserve respect uh, and dignity as well. Um, and, it's, and it's women and it's, you know, parents and it's mothers. Um, you know, it's, it, it almost feels like bargaining with the devil to want to make prisons better um, yeah. because I would really like to see, you know, those cells go unfilled. Um, right. On the other hand, 
someone's having an experience right now, and that matters very much. Ooh, it's time for a sponsor break. The Tool Shed is a mission-driven, education-based sex toy store located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. More than your typical adult store, the Tool Shed provides quality, body-safe products that enhance the sexual lives and relationships of their customers. And they do it all in a comfortable, compassionate, and welcoming atmosphere. Not located near Milwaukee? That's okay. The Toolshed's online shop at www.toolshedtoys.com serves customers all over the world. The Toolshed strives to be a source for accurate, up-to-date information about sexual health and pleasure. Their store is staffed by sexuality educators who are invested in providing sex-positive and inclusive support to their customers throughout their lifespan no matter where they're from. The Toolshed stocks a large selection of products made from body-safe materials. They have sexy toys for folks of all genders, orientations, and inclinations, including gear for strap-on play, vibrators to stimulate a variety of body parts, BDSM gear, kink supplies, and much more. The Toolshed is also proud to offer a large inventory of gender expression supplies like binders, soft packers, shaping underwear, and breast forms. Last but not least, the Toolshed stocks lots of great books on topics like raising gender variant and queer kids, staying sexy and connected while parenting, how to talk to your kids about sex, how to negotiate consent, and so many other important issues facing sex-positive families today. Every day, the Toolshed staff answers questions about products, pleasure, health, and consent, all without shame or stigma. They regularly offer classes on topics that are relevant to today's families, like creating a consent culture at home, ethical non-monogamy, gender expression, sex and disability, and sex and aging. The Toolshed offers in-person and online private consultations for people who have questions about any of those things, as well as other subjects like communication and relationships, establishing healthy boundaries, fertility basics, alternative menstrual products, and other topics that folks deal with every day as sexual beings. You can visit the Tool Shed in person at 2427 North Murray Avenue in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or check out their online store at www.toolshedtoys.com. From now through the end of 2019, use the promo code WASH2019 at checkout for a 10% discount off of your next purchase. Back to our show sex, birth, and death. Why? Why is it, do you think, that humans with our big, busy brains, that we've developed such a stigmatized and difficult relationship with these innately human experiences? And, and what is it in particular that drew you toward these areas of focus? I think the most powerful thing that unites sex, birth, and death, aside from a lot of really interesting patterns and waves that they all share, is that they are all moments of surrender. That at some point, you have to surrender to a form of sexuality you have. And whether that's if you're asexual, that's something that people have to face and grapple with and figure out how it integrates into their lives, um, whether you're queer or LGBT, um, you know, that you know, that first time you experience sexual desire, you know, that's the moment that you, you really, you might feel that lack of control and it can be very scary. Um, birth is very much that way. And, and obviously death is too. Death is, is how all of our lives will end. And it's intimidating to consider that, that that's the ultimate denial of control. Um, mm -hmm. But I do, I think it's hard for us to find surrender in our life. And those are the three places where, uh, we will face these incredible life-altering moments. 
and we want to control them so badly and these things are so big they won't let us so i i'm intimidated i'm scared by them so i find it necessary to befriend them uh, and so part of it has been how i cope with the immensity of these life experiences and uh, to learn about them um, get to know what they are and make myself open to the lessons they have to teach me. So it's it's only, I think, over the last few years that I've really heard the term full spectrum doula start to emerge. Um, I'm sure there that, that this role has existed for a while, but I feel like it's it's starting to get a little bit more attention. Um, and um, and it's coming more to the forefront. Um, can you speak a little bit about the role of the full spectrum doula and why the support is essential during these transitional times in someone's life? Yeah, um, I think the doula has always had a political background. The reason why birth doulas emerged is because people were being denied their rights and their humanity and their dignity in the birth process. And so the doula was really kind of the, the first moment when people said, we're not going to stand for this and we need to have allies uh, and people with us who aren't just going to be part of a commodified birth presence. Um, and so that first emergence is, is quite political. And then as the, uh, our reproductive rights have come under fire increasingly, uh, it's become necessary to have support from that because someone may be facing the emotional and psychological effects of stigma, uh, and they might also be facing very real practical and material concerns or impediments to their care, um, whether that's the, you know, you have a waiting period of 72 hours, you've already had to travel hundreds of miles to find a clinic, so now you have to take a week off of work for a procedure that may only take, you know, five minutes, an actual like time in the on the table and with a doctor um so you might need someone to help be with you for that length of time um, you might be feeling like you have to hide it from your family or your friends and there's no one you can talk to about what you're experiencing which i consider to be a sacred choice um when someone has gestational capacity we can't always call life in but we can stand at the gate and say it's not time for you to enter uh, and that's that's a powerful choice. And when there's so much stigma, people can just feel a sense of shame rather than um, the sense of power that they have to be able to make that that kind of a choice for themselves and to know what's best for them in their own life. Um, so being able to hold a presence for that uh, and let people feel whatever they're going to feel about what they're going through. So I think the full spectrum doula in the context of abortion is helping to mitigate all of these things that are practical and emotional, psychological, and in some cases, spiritual. Uh, but once that door got opened, it started to be really clear that um, it's not possible to just offer support to a couple of pregnancy outcomes. That we, there's so much diversity in our fertility. There are people who are struggling to become pregnant and they can feel very isolated in their life. And why does that person not deserve emotional and practical support for their fertility outcome. Uh, there might be someone who's facing a miscarriage and of a wanted pregnancy who needs someone to provide that same kind of support. Uh, it could be someone who's taking on the role of being a surrogate who is going to carry a baby for somebody else. There might be someone who is, is pregnant and is choosing adoption as the route for their child. Uh, once you start to to really consider how many outcomes there are to fertility, it, it starts to become harder and harder to say, I won't stand with you in your circumstances. Um, you, I, you know, I really see that, you know, all of our all of our witness and all of our power is tied in to each other's stories and journeys. So once I did my birth doula training, it became it became really impossible for me to ignore other outcomes and I wanted to start seeking out more training. And finding the full spectrum community was fantastic. That really, that's something that started in New York City. It quickly traveled to the Bay Area. And now there are um, full spectrum um, doula projects across the country. Uh, and it's, it's been exciting to watch them all grow and take on these roles of politics and of practical and emotional and, and spiritual 
uh, work. So they're, they're growing because the need is growing, because all of our reproductive choices are under fire. Um, and there, there are people who walk into the fire. And I'm honored to have been, to been learning from them and to, to be in their numbers. I think a lot of us are experiencing a lot of anxiety and fear surrounding the restriction and control of bodies and reproductive rights right now. And I think the, the news that's just pouring in about anti-abortion bills and legislation being passed in state after state, it, it can feel a little disempowering. What are some concrete ways that that we as individuals can push past this fear and anxiety and organize and resist and defend our reproductive rights. If talking to our listeners and all the individuals out there that are maybe experiencing this, this feeling. Yeah, there's a lot of, of um, growing uh, sense of resistance. And so, one of the first things I want to address is that a lot of people have been wanting to counter protest outside of clinics that provide abortions. Mm-hmm. And speaking on behalf of people who are patients, I would say that that instinct is really, really strong and it comes from a really powerful place, but it doesn't help to have more protesters outside of a clinic. That ultimately there are people who are just trying to receive health care that day. And when they're in the middle of the storm of people shouting over them, um, their experience gets lost. So if you've had the drive to protest um, or to confront protesters, uh, I would consider looking for what a, you know, basically a fake clinic or a a pregnancy options uh, clinic is in your town. And they are all over the country. There's an organization called Repro Action, and they help track these. They find these clinics that pretend that they offer a full spectrum of options, but in reality, they are pro-life fronts. Mm. And they are actively deceptive. They will they will make their advertising and their logos look like a Planned Parenthood, but in reality, they have an ultrasound machine, and um, they're going to proselytize, <laughs> and they're going to basically make someone um, by hook or by crook, whether it's by scheduling fake appointments to get them out of the window of when abortion oh. is legal, um, or straight up guilting them, making them watch movies. Um, applying a lot of pressure. And um, these are a growing threat. So being aware of where they are in your city, and um, odds are good that there is one in the city of anyone who's listening, know where they are. And if you feel called to protest, I would say that might be a place to direct that energy. Mm -hmm. Um, To defend rights of people, um, there are lots of abortion funds that need support. They need people who are willing to get on social media and either promote them or donate to them. Um, There is a fantastic, the National Network of Abortion um, has a bowling for access night every year uh, where people get together and they, you know, have bowling teams and different doula projects will, you know, have a good natured competition among each other for bowling, hoping to raise money to help Uh, defray the cost of abortion for people for whom it may not be accessible. So these abortion funds can go to childcare, hotel costs, um, medical fees, kind of any of the overt and the covert cost of abortion. So if you like bowling uh, and you've got a social media account, you can do a lot to support that and help someone get the health care that they need. Um, If you're looking to get trained, um, even if you don't want to become a professional doula, um, I think it's a great option to find an abortion doula project and attend their training. Um, ultimately, I think the work of a doula is, uh, it's, yeah, it's happened for thousands of years, and uh, it's something that I think teenagers have always been very good to with each other. Um, when I think back to my high school years, um, there were the people who would definitely have the same kind of bullying thing that we associate with high school, but there's also been the people who stuck by their friends. Um, whether that was in ending a pregnancy or carrying one on, um, who were really good at figuring out how to handle abortion access by getting a ride or saying, you know, I'll say that you're sleeping over, um, but helping each other. And so if, you know, if teenagers can figure this out, adults can definitely learn more about how to be supportive. So go attend one of these trainings, meet people in your community who share these causes, uh, learn a little bit about what's going on in your town and how you can uh, be a loving, supportive presence for somebody. 
Um, so those are the three things off the top of my head right now. Um, but um, there's also, uh, you know, all kinds of political things that are happening and getting to know these groups will help direct you to any other material things that are happening in your town. And that might be um, different pro-life marches that may need to um, have another presence or um, people willing to talk to the media. Um, it might be a clinic closure. It might be um, any number of things. So get to know your local scene and what your local needs are. And the best way to do that is to find an abortion doula project in your town. That's great advice. Thank you so much. So Maggie, what, what, what projects do you have going on right now? I know you always have a million different things going on and, and probably your very biggest project is your four month old. Um, but <laughs> what, I know that that is a big life project. It's a big, <laughs> it's huge. Ever, ever morphing. Uh, project. Um, but uh, what can we expect from you? And I know, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm always waiting for, for a Maggie Mayhem book to come out because I love your writing so much. <laughs> I, I think, I think we all need that out in the world, but not to oh, add anything to your you. action list. <laughs> Thank you. I've actually, I have been so intimidated to write in the past few years. So that's a, that's a hurdle I have to overcome is I, I feel, I feel very intimidated by sharing my writing and, you know, I kind of look at where I have an experience of abundance. I've had um, different kinds of energy that I'm able to share and yet I feel very um, protective uh, of my writing. So I hope that someday I do write a book. It's a goal I have, um, but I have to put, I have to put a lot of work into that. Um, so it's something that I look at in myself and I'm like, why am I so scared to do this right now? And what's, what's holding me back? That's, that's a big life a project right doula. there. I'll be your literary I need, doula. I, I do need a literary doula. I need someone who's going to give me accountability and a lot of space to say like, I am scared of mean people on the internet. <laughs> Um, so I need a literary doula. I need a literary doula big time. Um, I am continuing my traveling and my speaking schedule, um, which means figuring out how to do that as a new parent. And I'm very lucky that my baby has been cooperative so far. And I know that things mm -hmm. change, you know, with all kinds of regressions and progressions. Uh, but I will be traveling to Las Vegas this August for the largest gathering of hackers um, called DEF CON, and it has 20 to 23,000 people in attendance. Last year, when I was pregnant, I spoke on the main stage about the SESTA-FOSTA legislation that has been harming sex worker rights, um, and I will be returning. I will be returning this year, um, so I'll be, uh, I'll be at one of the smaller stages at Sky Talks, where we have the, the talks that are so important that they cannot be recorded, so no cameras are allowed. And I will be sharing some um, insight about sex worker rights and harm reduction in that space. So I'm really looking Wonderful. forward to doing that and figuring out how to do Las Vegas with a breastfeeding infant. So anyone who has any insight on that, you know, <laughs> please email me because that, that is, that's another big one. Um, and then I will be traveling to the UK um, where I'm going to be giving more of an academic lecture. And that will be at a, a thanatology conference, so a conference of deaf scholars. And I will be presenting my first Memento Mori, Deaf Imagery and Baby and Infant Products. And I'll be talking about uh, why it used to be a taboo to have anything death-related around pregnancy and why now it's so common to get on Amazon and get a skeleton onesie for your baby. Um, and what does that mean about our relationship to healthcare and the expected outcomes we have from pregnancy and infancy? So I have my like practical activism. I have some of my kind of more scholarly stuff. Um, but going to the UK is going to mean doing an international flight with a baby. Yeah. So I, you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, that's you know, I'm a working mom, and that is the thing that I need to figure out is how do I continue to do the work that fuels me and I feel very passionate about um, and integrate this new identity with me. So, you know, you knock traveling? on wood. Uh, Are you traveling with, with your partner? 
Yes. Which I think is going to be a big help. Um, My partner is also doing some scholarships. So he'll be speaking in the UK as well on um, Zoroastrian death rituals uh, in ancient Iran. So we're both going to be nerding out with deaf scholars. Um, We're both going to be passing the baby back and forth on this international flight. Uh, And so I'm, I'm hoping to put everything I've learned again from all the people I've worked with as a doula. I've had a lot of good tips um, and I get to put them into play and we'll see, we'll see how this goes. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I find that the, the breastfeeding really helps on, on the flights, the sucking helps with the ears and a lot of sleeping still is happening at that age. I feel like after, once they get to an well, in a few more months when when your kiddo is a little bit more toddlery and wanting to move around more, it's a little bit more challenging. But. Yeah, I, I, I'm really, I'm not scared about traveling with a baby. I am terrified of traveling with a toddler. And I know yeah. you did lots of travel constantly as a working mom. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Well, I will, I'll send you some of my tips for that. Um, and something that could be a a whole podcast (laughs) absolutely travel tips we we talk to a lot of mamas that are uh touring and traveling a lot so it's always nice to have those hacks um so we like to ask all of our guests what what I like to call the rose and the thorn I actually always ask my kids at at dinner what their rose and thorn of the day was and we actually do a bud um but for you just a rose and a thorn of for right now in this very moment what is your rose and thorn of parenting what you're enjoying the most about parenting right now in this moment and what your greatest challenge is in parenting this morning i was really lucky i got to um spend a morning with my baby sleeping in my arms and my animals were being fantastic. I have a lot of animals. I have five beehives on my roof. I have two dogs. I have a 14 year old cat. I have three rabbits. Um, And this beautiful morning, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) this beautiful, beautiful morning, my baby is looking gorgeous in my arms and my cat just kind of calmly came and sat beside us on the bed um, offering another snuggle border and then the dogs came in and they were being perfect and just being peaceful and we all had this beautiful beautiful rose of a moment where we were all being mammals and we we're all surrounding the sleeping mm-hmm. baby um, the thorn of this is the fact that I vacuum all day every day the vacuuming never ends <laughs> but I, I get to <laughs> I have this companionship Um, But with it comes this responsibility of making sure that we have a clean space and that, you know, we're not all getting cat hair and dog hair and rabbit hair, you know, um, in our food and all over our clothes. So my rose and my thorn is my beautiful animals um, (laughs) for all the love they give me and all the work that I, I get in return to have those moments. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Maggie, for being with us here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, it's been great listening to the podcast and I'm excited to watch it grow. I, I think as you have episodes, when will you consider this podcast to be a toddler? Because it's still kind of an infant. Um, it, it is still an infant. We, we just started in May. So very, very new. Mother's Day is when we launched. Oh, perfect launch. Well, it's been fantastic. I'm glad I was a part of it, and it's going to be exciting to see this grow. You've been listening to Wash Your Mouth Out Podcast. You can find us on the web at washyourmouthoutpodcast.com. Come follow us on Instagram at washyourmouthoutpodcast and on Twitter at mouthoutpodcast. Wanted to remind you about our Patreon at patreon.com slash washyourmouthout. For our tip jar and our lattes of love at respectively $1 and $5 each, we just give you so much gratitude. Hang 10 is our $10 per month level, and you will be keeping the audio waves and this new wave of feminism flowing. We will send you a special wash your mouth out one inch button pin for your backpack or jacket and a written thank you for screaming like a riot girl 
or toddler, you are on a riot level. We will send you a signed copy of one of Madison's books, either Daddy or The Ultimate Guide to Sex Through Pregnancy and Motherhood. You'll also get access to my, Moria's, online parenting courses for gentle sleep, gentle discipline, or potty. Or you can just wait for my new sleep book to come out. And there is also a last tier smashing stigma with a sledgehammer than $99 or more per month supporter level. You are a partner with us. You get a 20 minute uh, monthly sleep potty or gentle discipline coaching session with me, Moriam Malott, and a sex coaching for parents section with Madison. You'll get to know who our guests are ahead of time and submit questions you'd love for them to answer. And your generous monthly donation gets that and all so find us on patreon.com slash wash your mouth out and even if you can just give us that one dollar per month so you feel like you're really contributing as you're listening we really appreciate that too wash your mouth out wash your mouth out